0: who is that? Your agent? And I said, no, my girlfriend. Okay, 50 a night. <laughs> <laughs> he had to just go with it.
1: <laughs> remind so, mind you, how much were they charging at the door for a club night like that? Do you know? Um,
0: I think he was charging 10, I believe. Right. So you have
1: 2,000 people in there.
0: Okay. No, you're talking about the round table. Um, but yeah, Le Jardin had uh, maybe eight hundred people. But, okay, sixteen <laughs> so. thousand. the round table was cheaper. It was like five dollars to get in. But you know, you must know and everyone else must know that where people make a lot of money in clubs is at the bar. They make like a fortune. I mean, liquor, a drink of uh, an alcoholic drink literally costs them less than a dollar and you're paying twenty dollars for it. So That's where they make their big, that's their big profit margin. But for us at the gallery, we had nothing but that door cover to make things happen. Um, So, and we wanted to charge as little as possible because we were into people hearing that music and spreading the love. So that brings me to building the first gallery where, we, Robin and I talked and talked and talked and said, where are we going to get the sound system? And every club we went to, we saw a little strip that said, Rosner Custom Sound, Rosner Custom Sound. And then we're just, it was Christmas and we were just at Rockefeller Center and we rented ice skates and we went around. The, it's a, we're very, very reasonable. And we come back to give our ice skates back. And I'm looking at the stack of amps. And there it is, Rosner Custom <laughs> Sound. And then I said to Robin, Robin, it's a sign. <laughs> it's a sign, because we were talking about it all the time. Who's going to do our sound system? And we were, so Rosner walks in, he looks at the place and he said, I'll send you an estimate. And remember, we have $10,000, right? $6,800 for the sound system. And My brother, oh, we can't do it, are you here? And Robin and I convinced him that sound was the most important thing that was going to happen in that room because people were coming to dance, to hear new music. So why wouldn't it make sense to put your biggest capital behind the thing that's going to draw people there, the sound system?
1: Right. And that's why I guess, you you know, you show everybody to sound. There's no reason else, you know.
0: And um, I mean, in the first article of um, the sound system, $6,500 ended up being a $20,000 sound system very quickly because I was like, let's get another speaker. Um, let's make four corners. Let's uh, build bass horns. Let's have a crossover. Let's get tweeter raised. We started with three Altec Lansing A7s. And they Rosner was so excited because the wall had window impressions, window enclosures that were blocked because next door they built a building against the building. So the little enclosure, which was about a uh, two feet deep, would provide ten dB more sound, like a corner almost. It would act by putting the A sevens in the in the little window enclosure. So Alex was like, this is perfect, it's perfect. (laughs) And he was right, it was perfect. And then I went to the Four Corners and built a wall around the dance floor. Initially, I didn't have a wall around the dance floor in the first place, and we built it. And um, it became the hottest club. David closed for the summer to go to um, Spain with his staff he took his whole staff to spain well the next weekend we were back and the rest is history you know it's like well uh, yeah well
1: we will show them why look who's dancing in your crowd i know
0: this is larry before he was larry. famous and this is my club the gallery on 22nd street and um larry and frankie and we can show a picture of this frankie middle. Right right yep. in the middle. And this is the the booth behind us. They were both fans and they wanted jobs. And we gave them jobs blowing up balloons. As a matter of fact.
1: Let me yeah, show the balloons. Here we go. Look at the job they had to do. Working balloons.
0: Every Friday and Saturday night. This is Gigi. And there's Frankie. See the hat? With the balloon blower in between his legs, blowing up the balloons. And... This is where Frankie started, and he, you know, he readily admits it in the in the Love Is a Message documentary. Um, it's not it was never a problem for him. Who wanted to hide the fact that he blew up balloons with Larry? <laughs> he was not fond of, of of some of those memories. I don't know why, because Frankie embraced it so much, and and he just he made it. It was part of our experience you know it was part of our experience and i loved larry but he was very insecure with his talent and it was really sad because he was so talented and he was so insecure i mean high like i would get a new record and i would be proud to share the 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 name of the record with people because i wanted them to play it as well because i wanted the record to take off. soul Makosa I found in a little tiny record store in in um Flappish Avenue in Brooklyn. And believe me, a white boy gay with little short shorts, which I was wearing that day, did not go to Flappish Avenue in Brooklyn at all. Never mind during the day or night, anything. You didn't go at that time in Brooklyn. That's just the way it was. And which was okay with me. I am not a prejudiced person. I From a very young age, I knew, like, I heard my parents say the N-word, and I started screaming at them at nine years old. I'm screaming at them, I know that's not right. I know that's not right. I'm not going to eat with you guys if you say that again. I'm not eating. I mean, a kid. So in my heart, I really feel like certainly everything that we're going through right now is long overdue. Okay. COVID. Agreed. Agreed. And I'm sorry that it's not going faster and better, but, you know, COVID came along. Anyway, so let's get back to this story. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Larry, Frankie, and disenfranchised people. It was about, and Frankie says it so beautifully, where the people, the underprivileged people of Manhattan had a place to go every Saturday night to escape their worries and woes and experience love and joy. And that was the gallery. You went in and everybody was like, hi, hi, how are you doing t- this week? How are you? You know, every people knew- Multicultural, me. look at it. Beautiful yeah. dance floor. Beautiful. Multicultural, yeah, uh, absolutely. Everything gay, straight, black, white, every color, everything, and everybody got along. We never had a fight in seven years, in six years that we operated. We never had a fight. Never had a fight. Um, so, oh God, it's so, it, just looking at that picture, it was people. I mean, that dance floor would explode. And you see how high the mirrored ball is? Mm -hmm. People would jump up to spin it, (laughs) you know, because they wanted that ball to like fly around the room. And um, I mean, the little things that we did on the wall in the back, I put up a tapestry, right? And around the edge of the tapestry, I put little Christmas lights And they didn't just go on and off, they dimmed in or dimmed out. So the first time we used them, Robert sent the whole dance floor into darkness, right? And there's just people in darkness. All of a sudden, the tapestry starts glowing around the edges. People started losing their minds. It was an incredible reaction. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be the grandest thing ever. It just has to be done artistically and from a good place of love and understanding and camaraderie, and, baby, it will fly. It mm-hmm. will fly.
1: I believe that.
0: I, I, I've i seen it. I've seen it over and over again. And it doesn't have to be expensive, Len. No, it's got to be the moment. Everything has to be right, musically, right. spiritually. You know that, Nikki. Yeah. I've seen you do it. We've all always- for a long time, yes. Um, and I've I've seen you do it, actually. <laughs> at a at a at a great little um festival in um the one where John Morales said, You and I Oh I don't wanna even say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: know, I know. But,
0: so <laughs> so anyway, um yeah, here's some I mean,
1: questions I got for you before I- you know, you're in deep in the gallery. I want to go a little before gallery because there's also DJ superstars that you're starting to be around. You're becoming friends with many, which we'll we'll touch on, that help you shape your career in a way, somehow. You know, you, I guess, like, for example, I would say, like, at the time you had Bobby DJ and Michael Capello and all these DJs around you. And I know they were superstars in their own right, you know. And Francis
0: Grasso was Francis, a Francis. big superstar as well, but he, <laughs> Francis was very secure in his talent and it came across sometimes as arrogant. Um, unfortunately, because he he deserves all the accolades he gets. Um, but just the way he presented himself, it just, and a lot of people, Didn't want to deal with that. And for a while, you know, he couldn't get a job to save his life because he had screwed the people you talked about at the beginning, the mafia. He had um, had a club named after him and he demanded that they name it after him. And they did. And um, he never showed up to play there. And he was beat up pretty bad. And um, we all knew that story, and we all knew that Francis didn't look like he used to look. Um, And it it was just a sad, sad story, but it was the truth. And, and, And Francis, according to all accounts, was the master of blending, which is what it was back then. It wasn't beat matching yet. It was blending. I think Richie Kazar and myself were the people who really championed beat matching on every change. Let me show
1: Richie's picture. Even though it's funny, that's Richie Kazar. This is
0: Richie Kazar, and he was the DJ at the Hollywood when, uh, which is when I met him, and then he and I became the first DJs at Studio Fifty Four. And I was working. I was working the. weeknights and he because i was working at gallery and he was working the, uh, i hurt my foot so i had to like put it up on the chair um everybody send a donation nikki for his foot to be repaired yeah i'm trying to uh make sure that i'm okay to start touring next week i go to tel aviv and then my big birthday party at good room um which i'm excited about
1: show sure that while he's pushing go ahead, Nikki, yeah. tell everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> The 19th, and uh, you know what? I love giving parties, and I love playing, but I think this is, and I say this a lot, you know, no more this, no more that, but I was kidding all along, but the particular thing of the birthday party, I want to end it this year, because you stop, after a while, you don't want to count those numbers. You just don't want to get there with the numbers anymore. So maybe we'll have parties, but fuck this birthday extravaganza. This is it. (laughs) And actually we're going to show um, the trailer to the new love is the message uh, movie love is and if you're interested in learning about it, there's you go to love is and you just put in your email address, press enter and we're sending out notice we're not going to spam you because we don't believe in that but Maybe once every two weeks we're we'll gonna update you on what's going on and
1: how we're doing. It's it. a beautiful film. People, get on it. Loveismessagefilm dot You need.
0: Well, to- Len, Lenny, you saw the trailer, which is it's so breathtaking, isn't it? That trailer. It, it, I'm it, telling you, if I'm, t- it's a historical.
1: It's everything breathtaking, historical, and moving. If you never experienced New York clubbing, that will give you an indicator of how it really was. What we're missing.
0: And that's because I was very lucky to have some Tisch students come into the gallery and film the gallery for over a year, and um, it's just it's just sheer luck. my my cousin d- passed away, and I ended up with all the footage. Um, so it's um, it, you know what this is unfolding just like the gallery, the opening of the gallery unfolded. You know, it was just going here. I always say, when a door opens, at least go inside and look around. Don't just say no. And you know the old adage, the path of least resistance. And that's what the best path is always the past path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. When you're going in the right direction, you're not going to have a roadblock at every turn. Oh, hell you're going to have a lot of open doors and a lot of come right in. Hmm. Well said. Bring us. Okay. So now at the age I'm going to be, you learn these fucking things. <laughs> Finally, I'm learning. Thank you. Thank you. Goddess. Finally, I'm learning. Um, I mean, for so many years, um, because of, because of the molestation, I was really stuck for a while. Um, in my spiritual growth. And then I met Marianne Williamson and read this book, A Course in Miracles, and studied that book. And to this day, work within the context of that book and meditate every day. And that's the key to, I found how, why I play records so well. Because I let go of my ego and I allow a higher power to just, take control and I listen to the first thing she he says the first suggestion is always inspiration everything after that is ego so I try to play the first thing that comes into my mind when I hear it and a lot of people say you know when I go to Nikki's parties I'm thinking of a record and he plays it and you know what That's because we're all hearing the same inspiration. But you got to be open to it. You have to allow yourself to get out of your own way. Get out of your own way. How do you do that, Nikki? Because you've been through a a lot of things in your life. Okay, the, the meditation was a big one. The meditation gave me a real view of what my ego is, how it operates, and how to quiet it. And so i that's what I've learned to do, meditate before a gig and just go in and remind myself all during the night, this is through you, it's not you, it's through you. And when you see those smiling faces and you see people having a good time, you know, you know it's right, you know it's right. So if, if, if she was here,
1: Miss Rodriguez, what would she yeah. say to you? <laughs>
0: right now this is this this was my main now although i was like michael capella was the dj i looked up to most it wasn't david mancuso that's michael capella there's there's david mancuso in the background this is the loft at 99 prince street Mm -hmm. which is not the first loft the first loft was on broadway at 647 broadway Broadway and Bleecker. I actually moved into an apartment building around the corner from the loft because I wanted to be nearby because every Saturday night I went. So that's how obsessed I was with the loft. Um, but David really created atmosphere. I mean, Mancuso. He created. Mancuso. <laughs> Hang on, let me go Mancuso. There he is David behind. Mancuso it. created atmosphere. He, he didn't really play records, whereas DJing is a kind of another art. Capella. Was masterful at it. And he learned from Grasso, Francis Grasso. And again, he was that kind of person who was able to let the inspiration in without giving into his ego. Whereas Rodriguez was more about the ego when he played. But if Rodriguez was alive today, he would be the most famous stand up comedian you (laughs) ever knew because he was so funny that looking at him you would laugh sometimes and he really had a one-liner for everything as a matter of fact he worked at the continental baths when midler was coming up and he's the one who kept saying fuck him if they can't take a joke fuck him if they can't take a joke and Bette midler started saying that and it became a thing I mean, a lot of my friends were <laughs> were saying those things that became like a monumental thing in society. You know, in the in the kind of um, zeitgeist of the of the latest fads. Um, Larry was the cap sleeves T-shirt. Now that was the thing I wanted to say about the first gallery. It became a a um, fashion designer. It was like Calvin. It was very famous from back then was, Oh God, please. Not now. (laughs) Not now. You're letting me blank out on a name. Okay. He won the Cody and um, he won the Cody that year. He was, he was in this new movie about Halston um, when they went to, that thing in Paris. Did you see that thing about, not the movie, but the episodic thing? Yeah. Ewan McGregor, who played Halston. Mm Exactly. But one of the designers was in that Paris thing. He was one of them. Um, And he's still around today. Anyway, he used to come every Saturday night. Remember, he said, Fernando, take them home because he had a limousine. So he always used to say when I went out with him, Fernando, Take them home and get out of the car, Stephen Burroughs. Stephen
1: Burroughs. So, I remember Larry was, loved his um his his clothes. Mm-hmm.
0: That's mm-hmm. right. Remember, I mean, because yeah. they were friends close. from the gallery, right? So Larry, if you show that picture, you see this cap sleeve T-shirt. Yeah, that, that was Larry's claim to fame. He made this shirt. He made the shirt. He made the shirt. Well, maybe it was a t-shirt, and he and he lifted the sleeves and made it capped, like and trimmed,
1: that. It, trimmed it, it. And and then-
0: listen to this story. He, so we're at the old gallery, you know, hanging out together. We became lovers for a brief period, and, but he was like, we were best friends, no doubt about it. And he would make those cap sleeve t-shirts and and wear them at the gallery every Saturday night. Now I'm talking about all the, fa- the not only the fashion designers, but the models would come and they would have their um, underwear with the embroidered name of the designer on the underwear. There, Billy Blair, I think, was one of them. And she had the name on her underwear. And it was, did you see Billy Blair? She lifted her hands and there was a, you know, there was the signature on thing in satin. It was wild times. And it was beautiful, too, because it's when I went to Moscow right after Yeltsin um, became president. And it was just so wonderful. And I described it as New York in the 70s. Lots of opportunities and a little bit dangerous. And that's how New York was. It was lots of opportunities and a little bit dangerous. It was kind of um, what we're going through now, but worse. I have had I had gold chains ripped off of my neck in the subway. Anyway, so Stephen Burroughs, all these people were there. And it really gave a name to the gallery as, as a fashion industry watering hole. Larry makes these cap sleeves T-shirts. All the designers come. And we're walking down uh, 8th Street one day, me and him, and we had just gone to buy records. There was a record store on, on 8th Street back then. We turn on McDougal, and there's Capizio, and it's downstairs. Capizio was downstairs. Let's see what's in Capizio. And we look down, and we see a window filled with cap sleeve t shirts. Now, no one had been doing that Ooh. prior to this. Larry got very upset. What did he do? Well, he sat down on the stoop, and I sat down next to him. And he was just, he was was upset. He was not mad like upset, just like sad. Like sad. They stole my idea, and he didn't know what to do. And I just put my arm around him, and we just sat there. And he said, I think I want to be a DJ. Can you teach me? And I said, that was at the moment that happened there. Yeah. 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 Because of the shirt. Wow. Yeah. I think it was because of the shirt. I don't know. It might've been on his mind before and he didn't have the uh, chutzpah to ask me yet, but that was when I started taking him there on the days we were closed and just working with him with, blends like i was taught don't cut off the words um you know you could tell a story make sure the blend you can dance through the blend it wasn't yet beat matching We still was blending and they would we would try our best to make it work but we weren't it wasn't a science yet we weren't holding the mat we weren't slip killing yet it was just you put the needle on, you put the needle on again, 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 again. Oh, it matches now. Turn it up. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. It was by, per chance. Um, so we, um, when I started getting into beat matching and I, and David Rodriguez helped me immensely. And then Richie Kazar helped me. And together, Richie and I like really championed it. and uh, the two of us really made that become the norm in all the clubs. Now, I couldn't care less if it matches. Fuck that. I want the right song on the next turntable. That's what I want. I don't want a perfect change. I want the right song, the right song at the right time. And I'm sick and tired of going to clubs where people play the same tempo all night long. Because yeah, we do <laughs> Okay. That's an argument we could always have all the time. We, we, okay, okay. But I, I, just, I just... I know where you're going. The whole, whole industry needs to move their thinking forward on blending and beat matching. You don't have to match every record. You need to play the right song and change the tempo once in a while. So Let me say this then.
1: I'm going to show a picture of when you guys shared an apartment together, okay? I know from Tom telling me one night he took somebody. Tom Mulca took someone to see David at
0: Limelight, and, and he it, played "Make Your Way Home" ten times. And,
1: right, and, 10 times. and "Rain." They kept saying to him, "Play Rain, play the thunder," and he
0: played ten minutes of a clapping thunder. Yeah, ten minutes, and then were like, "That was Sonic Seasonings." It was by Walter but, Carlos, but now it's Wendy Carlos. So here's the thing, that's what he's talking
1: about making drama and feeling right exactly exactly drama nobody understands unless you experienced it
0: nobody understands that right And, and they don't understand how to recreate it um and it's not about recreating it it's about finding your own way to express it it doesn't have to be recreated like we did it Find your own way to express that kind of moment with drama, with feelings. I did a mix one night, and this was kind of recently. A record was playing, and there was an extended horn, and I can't remember what it was. But there was an extended horn, and it reminded me exactly of an extended horn in a whole different record at a different tempo. I matched it on the horn. And the record changed on the horn match. And people went, whoa, right in front of the booth. They all went, whoa. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about finding creative ways to do mixes rather than just fall on the floor. And I'm bored to death. Um, um, Frankie used to call them plateau DJs like there was no peak, no valley just a plateau on
1: linear, just stays same right. all night long right
0: I get it <clears throat> I get it so you have some other pictures
1: <laughs> I have pictures but I'm going to see now. I'm going to go to the ones of course you know I read recently in one of your things about this one. I'm going to put the the, the ticket up first because the story is going to get All real. Right.
0: You talked about this damn Diana Ross thing. Okay, okay. Of- this is not the actual, that was at Forest Hills. Right. Stadium, But that's, a, I could talk about that night too because that was something as well. This is when she was promoting the um, Nile nah, Rogers album. But before that, I had really been, instrumental in love hangover happening i mean i re, um frankie says it in his interview oh the first night you got love hangover, you must have played it 10 times and that's what we did back then we it was like we were the radio because the radio wasn't doing what we were doing and the radio what does it do when it wants to break a record it puts it on heavy rotation right, over and, over. right. and that's what we did but It was because we loved the record. I mean, I must have played it 10 times, Frankie. And Frankie said this. And at the end, they were screaming for you to play it again. And I picked up the needle because I only had one copy and put it on right from the slow part in the beginning. So I went to this concert at the Palace, which the big billboard was the cover of that album, that Love Hangover album, the black and white album. And we were outside. Right. And. We had a group of us. We had a whole row. And show the picture of all of us outside. Um, Rodriguez was there. Let me find that picture. Give me one. And um, I'm there. My friend, oh, here Mela. All of us, all the people behind us, we had 11 people, right? And we wanted to hear Surrender because that was the first song that we became enamored with Ross by as a solo performer that we were just crazy about that. And when I came out, that was the gay national anthem, I used to call it. This is my friend Mel, I'm going to see it soon. Anyway, so we had this sign, we made it up, I made it up, (laughs) and we each had a, 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 a letter and we were about 12 rows back on the aisle at the palace and we had the whole row And there was a lull. And I said, now, now. And we all picked up our (laughs) letters. And she goes, um, what's that? What's that? Sing Surrender. Do you know how old that record is? And Rodriguez in classic form goes, want the release date? (laughs) (laughs) Classic Rodriguez. And she says, well, we don't have the music to that but if you come back another night i'll do it for you and rodriguez classic form you paying for the ticket <laughs> <laughs> classic rodriguez so then she does love hangover and she fucking walks off the stage for the groove for the part that we all played it from um, you know dun, 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 dun. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: ding ding ding
1: ding, 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 ding.
0: Yeah, good night everyone right. <laughs> and then everybody would go crazy and she would be going i don't want your love we wanted to hear her do all those improvs because i had like made little you know places where i brought the bass down during it brought the bass back up and made it real exciting and She just walks off the stage to change her costume and the band plays the song. And it just showed me how out of touch she was with her audience. And then the ultimate was the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium several years later. And we would catch every one of her shows. And I described one at Radio City Music Hall where she walked out of the screen singing Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And me and my friend Lewis were right there in the aisle screaming at her so much. At the end, we kept going, one, two, three. Diana! And she heard us very clearly, honey, that she didn't know what to do. She's looking at us. She starts ripping the beads from the long sleeves that were hanging and throwing them to us. She- oh, really? Yeah, swear to God. Swear to God. To go home. She wanted you bitches out of there, right? She wanted us to go home, right. <laughs> and then, so we go to Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, and what's out? The new Nile Rodgers, Dana Ross song. Uh, I'm song. Out. What are we playing? What are we playing in the club?
1: At that time? Mm-hmm. That's how I'm coming out.
0: Right. And what's the other song on it? Oh, God, I can't think upside of it. Upside Down, right? I'm yeah, Upside Down, I'm Coming Out, right? Okay. So Upside Down's on the radio, but every fucking club is playing I'm Coming Out. Coming every, Out, I remember. Every fucking club. So she comes out, she does her whole show, classics um, Ross. Oh, put your hands up, reach out and touch, and look at it waving. And the first time she did that, was when I saw her at Radio City, and she was there at Newport Jazz Festival to do her whole Billie Holiday shtick, and she did every song from that album, and we were blown away. And then she did Reach Out and Touch, and we were right in front, and she said, turn around and look at this. And we looked, and we saw the four balconies with people all with their hands in the air. Now, this was the first time, but by the time we got to Forest Hills, it was the 10th time. So we're there, and we're Reach Out and Touch. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. She had sang upside down. She didn't sing I'm Coming Out.
1: Right. did again. not
0: sing it. Was walking off. The whole tennis stadium. Boo! She stops in her tracks. What? What's wrong? What's wrong? The whole tennis stadium. Sing I'm Coming Out. Oh, no we're not prepared how about if i do upside down again no the whole stadium thing i'm coming out she finally gets the music out has to hold it on the floor because it's it's windy and blowing and the music is blowing and she sings the song and leaves but again how out of touch did you have to be not to know that was the song and Man, now me. tells me it wasn't her favorite song, but okay, she embraced it, you know, it became, it became uh, her favorite song. And, and rightfully so, it said something to us, you know, it said something about uh, everything that was happening in our lives. Um, So it was important. It was important to us.
1: Well, at the same time around the, I'm going to go back to the seventies for a minute, you know, and and gave me some other pictures too. I'm going to bring up in a second. and I want to show this to everybody how DJs hung out, had affairs and stuff that were going on, you know, because
0: okay. a lot of you, gay... You want me to talk about that? Sure. Okay. Comfortable. Well, there yes. was in the beginning, like in 73, when the gallery started going, we had a little group of, of DJs that hung out together. And there was this place. In the village on Christopher Street, called David's Potbelly, and they served every kind of omelet you could ever want. As a matter of fact, they always said we have a hundred and one kinds of omelets. Anyway, we loved the waitress there, and every time when um, Lesha Dan closed at four a.m., we would go down there and have an omelet. And who would walk in from the limelight? Michael and David and Larry would join us, and Frankie would join us, and who else? Richie Kazar, um, often um, Bobby Goodadaro, and we would have a big table, and we would all talk and everything. Eventually, we started going on vacations together. Often, oh, yeah. we went on vacations together, and this was the group of us. I'm taking the pic- picture, but this is my lover, Robert De Silva. Behind him, David Rodriguez, and there's Michael Capella, and we're at Magic Mountain, in 1974. Um, so it was very early on. Uh, and we we would vacation together and we became friends. And what happened was a sharing of music, a sharing of ideas. And it helped the whole thing move forward very quickly until it, you know, the disc, until the, the um record companies got a hold of it and said, ooh. It's making money. Let's name it disco, you know. And but before that, we really didn't have that word going around. It was like we're going to the party, we're going to the club. Not no one ever said we're going to the disco. It was not, but in 75, that all changed. And especially with Billboard's disco convention, um, which I was a speaker at. Uh, several times and the thing about the record companies was it's like brand it name it, make money from it and then oh, they noticed that a record that had a big banner that said disco sold 100,000 copies before anyone heard it out of the box, so what did the right execs do, the one in the diapers he put all the shit that they wanted to get rid of in those covers. And what happened? People got burned left and right. And then a whole bunch of women were going out with their gay friends to the clubs because they wanted to dance. And the straight guys were not amused and they came along and a lot of them participated in acts that they didn't want to participate in just because they wanted some pussy, and Right? I understood it, I understood it, and I was all, it was fine, it was all beautiful, it was all wonderful, but there was a resentment growing there. And then Studio 54. You can get in, you can't. You can get in, you can't. And thousands and thousands of people every night, year after year. Disco is dead. How that happened? Look at the building blocks that it had. Look at those building blocks cheating everyone out of their records, their favorite music, giving people a hard time to get into a club that they really wanted to go to because you advertised it every day with pictorials in the middle of the daily news every day. And then a lot of straight guys who were tired of following their girls to the clubs and thus Kaminsky Park and Disco is Dead and let's burn this big pile of disco records. But you know what? It wasn't disco records. It was R&B records because that's what we were playing back then, not disco. We were playing R&B, danceable R&B, we used to say.
1: Danceable R&B. And now here's how we saw it, okay, from the other side. So the best sound systems were all the gay clubs. The best music was all the gay clubs. That's how we saw it coming up. Even in the 80s, it was the same way. The best sound, the, the owners cared about the sound. Um, they cared about the DJ. They cared about everything that went into because the music was the center of attraction post you know, later on what went on with the commercialization of 54 and all those clubs that post after that became, right. you know. So I'm going to then ask you this. How important is your position in the road to what came after you? So, in other words, Steve is around you, Steve b- rebels around Okay, you. so I you met. Know, Steve, I mean, tell everybody who's yeah. around you. Please, you know.
0: Okay, I met Steve when he opened his first club Enchanted Gardens, um, which was on the Douglaston Golf Course in Long Island. And I'll never forget Steve. um, Billy Smith, that promotion man I talked about, introduced me. He said, I want you to meet someone. We drive out to Douglaston. And um, if people know, it's the last exit before it turns into Long Island. It's the last exit in Queens. And I don't know if people know this, but back then, as soon as you cross that borderline, the taxis would go double. It would be double the fare. So often, well, after he he decided to hire me, I I um often would fight with cab drivers and say, no, it's in Queens. Please just go and you'll see. So anyway, we got through all that. Anyway, I meet Steve at a dinner at the Douglas and Golf Course. The place is not open yet. And I look around and I think it's a very nice place. Steve is like a little mensch, you know? He's like, uh, you know, he's engaged um and uh he's got a lot of dreams he owns steak loft and he wants to open a club and uh and this is going to be it enchanted garden so billy says why don't you hire nikki to play uh a night at least and i said well i can't play the weekends but i i'd play a night you would you would okay great and tuesday night and then Paul Casella, I think, was all the other nights. And he's a great DJ, doesn't get enough credit.
1: That's um, right. He is a great DJ.
0: Yes, he is. He's one of those people who... Unsung heroes. Who heard the calling, you know, who heard the inspiration and went with the inspiration rather than his ego. Um, so um, Paul Casella's during the week. I'm I'm on Tuesday nights. Tuesday nights is packed. Hat. It's a Saturday, right? Like a Saturday night Like a Saturday night, exactly And um, Steve comes up to me one night and I used to do a little Diana Ross medley like Supremes medley like all the old songs like the composer of the song Love Child, you know, I used to do a little like one verse, one chorus of each and go back and do another one another one, another one and he'd come up to the booth play one more, play one more, Nikki. I love Diana Ross. I love Diana Ross. Well, two years later, he's doing what with her in the back office that could really change you, uh, very quickly. So I'm there one night in, in Enchanted Gardens. And, um, I just had, had enough. I, I was just like traveling out there all the time. And Ian came up to me and he said, Nikki, what is it? What is it? And I said, I just have had enough. I, it's like a year and a half. And um, I just don't want to travel here anymore. And he said, I understand that. And I'll never forget, I said to him and Stevie, if you to open a club in the city, let me know. And sure enough, when they closed Enchanted Gardens, about, eight, and Steve, from the moment he hired me, became a regular at the gallery. He was there every Saturday night and we had a little fling too. So he spent a lot of time with me at my house, alone together talking and before studio open. And then you saw how my lights were. They looked like they were going up into the ceiling. Well, his lights did go up into the ceiling and it wasn't a far stretch to see that he took an idea and put it to the end degree which is great that's what we did back then i just was appalled at the door policy i i think it hurt too many people's feelings but nevertheless the club was amazing studio 54 took every idea that we all had through the 70s and put it on steroids and it was amazing it was because it was a theater he was able to put three different light shows up in the grid and they would come down and for an hour you'd watch one set of light shows and lights and and um, Robert De Silva is working them amazingly then they disappear and you got a whole other light system coming down and doing things and he would always know the cues because I was there, Richie was there he knew the records, he knew the songs so it was nothing short of amazing because every cue was perfect, every light was used for a reason. It was an amazing time. Unfortunately, it was just three years, and that was it. You know. Yeah, I know. So, Ben, Nikki, yeah, Nikki, the question that came
1: to mind is: again, pre to studio and garage would these clubs have existed if there was no
0: gallery? I don't know. Some things are just predestined to happen, you know, and and maybe they would have, but they certainly influenced the people who had them and the people who opened them. A lot of gallery definitely was a big influence on Larry. I mean, Larry, at the beginning, people would go and he said, Nikki, he's just doing your night. Um, you know, at the beginning, before he really got comfortable with his own thing. He was a great DJ, but he was a little insecure at the beginning. And then he got it. He got it right away. And he became the most fantastic DJ. Really great. Um, and what uh catalog of mixes that he contributed to our industry. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, and then us as a iconic, producer. Iconic things like that beginning of Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And Jocelyn sing, I'm going nowhere." I mean, it's just, you hear the beginning of that and you get goosebumps on the back of your neck. It's just that iconic and great. Um, so, Larry, I love you, Frankie, you are my best friend. Um, and he was until the end, um, a very dear, close friend. Um, as a matter of fact, I had put out the movie, the first draft of the movie, and um, he was gave me a fantastic 45-minute interview for it. And I sent it to him and he was in London when it came. Came home, he saw the package, and he went to sleep and he died that night. He never saw the movie. And it, it really broke my heart that it happened in, those, in that order. But you know what? Like I said, everything is meant to be, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, I will love him. He's so special to me, Frankie. He was the epitome of what a good person is. Mm -hmm. He lived a life of really a wonderful human being. Oh, yeah. Agreed.
1: He was... He inspired a generation like you and many people to become amazing talent and DJs and just him cooking as a chef. I remember, oh God, wonderful person.
0: Yeah. He was like, like you said, a wonderful person. Yeah. He would not like, if you were walking and you said, Frankie, Frankie, he wouldn't keep walking. He would stop and talk to you, not just a cursory, um, hi, how you doing? But a real, how are you today? A real interest, Um, a great human being.
1: Okay, Nikki, here's a real quick question because this is the parts we don't really get to hear. What made you stop playing records in those years? Like, what was you know what made you? So
0: I played, I played a lot of nights, but I played every Saturday night from 1971 to 1981. Okay, after the gallery closed the end of 77, 78, I played at a place called the Buttermilk Bottom until 1981. Um, the sequence of events happened like this. I tried to reopen the gallery, but I was so using drugs that I couldn't make it happen. Couldn't make it happen. Wound up on the street and went back to my parents' house and they basically said to me, if you want to come in, you can, but you need to go to this drug treatment program. And I did. I didn't stay sober, but because, but it planted a seed, it planted a seed. And then AIDS started coming out all around us. And I realized that I had to get clean and I went to a brand new thing in New York, just two meetings a week called oh I'll say it, NA. Um so I went through that and stayed in for a lot of years, and then David Rodriguez got sick, and I started losing it. And I started Sure I started going to a thing called a healing circle, which was like self-healing and pushed by Louise Hay. And um, it was so hard for all of us, especially gay men, because people were dropping daily, daily. We would go to the hospital and within a month or two, the person was gone. Um, So... I started going to this healing circle, called up a friend of mine that I knew from the 12-step program to tell them, well, why don't you bring like one of these healing circles to Daytop or Samaritan Village, whatever it was. They said, "Uh, it's a little too progressive for us, but why don't you come and interview for, as a counselor, you're sober Why? At the time, two years, I think. And she said, that's enough. And they had this line open. And remember what I said about God, if the door opens and go around, look around. And that's exactly what my sponsor said to me when I called him that night. He said, go in and look around. They hired me as a counselor. But what happened in that agency was that no one wanted to be in a room with people who were HIV positive and have a counseling session. No one wanted to be in a group with HIV positive people because they didn't know. This is 1973, 74. So people are all freaking out and I'm not scared. And I say, because I know it's sexually transmitted by then. I knew, that, I knew what was going on. The gay community was at the forefront of discovering what was going on.
1: You sure is that early? It's 73? I thought it was a little bit oh, late. i sorry.
0: I said 83.
1: I was going to say 73. You were in the height of your career.
0: <laughs> <like>, no way. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. You are well, in the height of your career. That's not no, what that's going No, doing. no, no, no. I'm so sorry. That's so okay. okay. 83, 84. Thank you for correcting me, uh, Lenny. So 83, 84, and Rodriguez dies. Now
1: I'm on a mission. How long did he have it? Did you guys find out he had HIV? How long did he live three with it? Years. About 3 years. Because the toxicity Because the medication was so r- rough okay. on it.
0: so what happened was yeah, finally AZT comes out and they start giving it to people who are totally healthy thinking that it's going to help them, but it shortens their life because the toxicity from AZT was so high and the benefit Was only good when you were really far gone and needed an extra two years when people had very low T cells. So I started advocating with people do not take AZT if your T cells are high. Don't even go there. If your T cells are above 400, you're fine. Go take some vitamins. And then I started to do little studies with on clients of mine, because I had all the HIV people, and what are you taking? I'm taking vitamin C, algae, and this thing. And I would take a little chart that I made up of all the important things to watch for in, in for an HIV person, and I would follow their results from taking alternative therapies. And I found certain things were working better than other things. And again, I walked down. Now, I'm in the third agency in Help Project Samaritan, it's called. I went from Project Samaritan to Daytop to Help Project Samaritan, which was a nursing home with for people, drug addicts with end-stage AIDS. And <clears throat> I walked down the hallway, and I start gathering all this information doing lectures at this place called the Manhattan Center for Living and later on a thing called Friends Indeed on these things that could help you. And I said to a lover at the time, you know, I really want to tell people about this, but I want to write my life story. And he said, ah, I don't know. How about writing a book about HIV? And he pointed to my lecture pads. And I walked down the hallway where I worked and said, I want to do a book. Does anyone know anyone? Does anyone know anyone? The head nurse gave me one phone number. That person told me how to write a proposal for a book. She edited it for me and she gave me three agents to send it to. Overnight, one of the agents called and had a book deal within three months. Now, And No Time to Wait came out, which is... To this day, people stop me. You saved my life. You saved my life. And you know what that is to me? That's the most important thing that I've done. That's the most... Not playing records. That's
1: that's like a Grammy. That's like the greatest moment of life, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) You can't... You can't shadow that. That's something that... Yeah, because we did hear about that you were writing a book at that time. I remember hearing about that. And again... Nikki, this is the truth now, okay? When you went into that world, a lot of us thought either two things happened. You either died or you just went away. Nobody heard nothing about you. Until well, a phone
0: call comes to you later, but you'll tell well, that phone I call. got sober. And so I went to the garage one night and I slipped. And so... Then I got sober again. And then I went to the garage a year and a half later and I slipped again. So I said, okay. Everyone, the, paras- life? The, the parasite garage, as they call it. <laughs> <laughs> David, David Rodriguez, again, used to call it the parasite garage. The parasite yeah. garage. <laughs> yeah. and, and I loved the garage. Come on. The garage was a garage. It was There was nothing better than that at that time. Yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing better. Nothing better than the garage. And. So I realized that I had to stay away. I didn't know for how long or for what, but I always was listening to the radio, collecting music. Oh, wouldn't that sound good on a big sound system? And then I moved to Virginia where Robin, the first person who got me into all these clubs and got me into this space, lived. And um, I started working with an AIDS uh, organization, Tidewater AIDS organization, and I was burnt out. I had been doing it from 1983 to then 1996. Just 13 good years. Yeah. So I'm meditating because I learned to meditate and and I'm meditating and I hear very clearly, quit your job. And I was like, (laughs) God, you're kidding me, right? I can't <laughs> just quit my job. So I ignore it the next day. Quit your job. <laughs> and she's tenacious when she wants to be. Wait, wait. hashtag quit <laughs> your job. <You're> like- <laughs> Finally, I on sheer, on sheer like faith, I went in and gave my two weeks' notice. The day before my last day, Francois calls me from body and soul and says, want to play Larry LeVan's birthday party? We'd love to have you. And that was the beginning of my music career again.
1: And let me tell you, everybody, when the word got out, we were like, Nicky, Nikki Nicky who?
0: <laughs>
1: That's exactly what I was saying to somebody. They said, Nicky Ciano. mean Gallery Nicky? <laughs> yeah. And all the old queens were like, I thought she was gone. Yeah, I thought she was
0: dead. <laughs> she, thought she was dead and buried. You know, all the bitches like, she right. just got out of retirement? That's and In the beginning, I was, I was not, I was not. Uh,
1: Francois called you yeah. and said to you, Nikki, it's Francois. Yeah. <laughs>
0: right.
1: I want you to come and play.
0: New York, come to New York and play for you like. Of- you come play where? I, did you know about Body and Soul? Did you know about any of this going no, on? No, I didn't know Body and Soul was the biggest party in New York. I get a hot, yeah, the hot Sunday party. My- hot Sunday! Oh my God! I spent many a night there after that. Many, many a night. Um, I was there every weekend. It was a fantastic party. Fantastic.
1: I was there when you came home to play. I'll never forget.
0: And um, it was very hot that night. A lot of my friends came and it was, you know, I was playing records that no one wanted to hear. (laughs) I'm playing like think by Lynn Collins and all these things. So I laid back a couple of years and I did work. I worked, I kept going overseas, kept working overseas. And then I started a party called 12 West at the old sound factory bar. Mm -hmm. And, I sort of was mixing the Body and Soul classics, the Body and Soul like Stardust and you know um, all those all those great Body and Soul songs. Oh my God, There was so what a, what a year that was! You don't even know me, um, Armand Van Helden, Flowers, all those things that were Body and Soul classics, and then some class real classics from the early club years. People were like. They were getting it. It was working. And then all of a sudden it took a twist for me. Like the music from Body and Soul ended and no, nothing like that was coming out that moved me in the same way. So I started digging and finding old records that no one had played. Like only the strong survive. Billy right. Paul. Billy Paul. No one was playing that back then and no one was playing it now. And I started playing it everywhere I played. All of a sudden, everyone was playing it. And Danny Crivet handed me a song. I'll never forget it. He said, I just did this re-edit of this old thing from the garage. It's called Stand on the Word. Oh, yes. And he handed it to me and I start playing it every trip overseas, everywhere. Everybody starts playing that song. And I realized that we're in the same place. You know, you hear a good song and you want to get it and you want to, you know. So I start going through all the B-sides of everything. Like Ashford and Simpson, Nobody Knows. My favorite song now by them. Oh my God, I love that remix of it. Um, And, and just playing all these, a set of things that I love. And it keeps growing and changing because I keep digging. I keep thinking.
1: So now, Nikki, let me say this. So when I went to go see you at Vinyl, okay, when you came back, I watched, and, you know, because I came with David Lozada, we were all hanging out, and I kept saying to everybody, now I know where Larry gets him working the system. Because I watched right away. I stepped watching you working the crossover. And I said, it's like riding a bicycle. You don't forget. Right? Okay, How long you haven't played. I said, she may be... He, I kept saying you may be out of tune for a little bit, but she's going to show. And you did. You work in the system. I kept saying. Now I understand how I play from this because it comes from down. Because right. I experienced Larry for so
0: long, and all those. And Larry really was a direct, directly influenced. Probably, disciple, I think right? more than anyone else. I mean, he he loved to go see David, but as far as his style and the way he played, that was. All me, all me. So, darling, I can't talk for too I much longer, but... That's it. No, we covered... You cover I just, you know, I wanted you to, to explain... Thank you, everybody, for watching, and... How amazing you this are! This is going to be on Twitch TV forever, and you can watch it So then. let's make sure we put
1: this up. Here's a couple
0: things. Yeah. Nikki's party. The he, 19th of Nikki, March, my 19th. birthday celebration at the Good Room... The Good Room, I've been playing The Good Room almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, before anybody else was playing there, I, you know, like Danny Crivet, I remember ca- talking to him on the phone and he said, yeah, but they don't have a good sound system. I said, no, they redid the sound, come down and hear it. Next thing I know, they're doing 718 sessions. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is great. And <laughs> I'm going back to Detroit, which I love Detroit. I just love Detroit. And then I'm going to be at some, um, in, in, in this place is in Manchester. That's amazing. I right. played
1: the party April 15th. That's a hot party.
0: Woo. They're going to kick your ass. and you're gonna Oh, kick- uh, Manchester is, they are big. They're going to kick your ass and you're going to kick their ass back. They love, they love me in Manchester, England. Now- they love me. And then I'm going up to um, SSW3, uh, the Scottish Weekender.
1: Yes, uh, yep. John Morales. <laughs> John Morales. Wait, but here's, the, the, here's a funny one, everybody. I want to know where the hell can I get this effing ice cream cake,
0: bitch? <laughs> okay, this is only available is in this? California, and it is my new ice cream cake weed. It is outstanding, but unfortunately... It is only available in California. So if you live in California, oh, get go get it. To FoxworthyFarms.com and you can order this. Uh, it's it's not out yet. It'll be out in four weeks.
1: Okay, so everybody listen carefully. QVC shoppers. <laughs> QVC shoppers. QVC shoppers, listen to Lenny, brother Lenny, tell you the galleries, <laughs> Nikki Ciano. Sonoma, get high, get tasty, get sugared out with the gallery ice cream. Miss Liberty herself bringing it to you. I like what they did with that. Uh, of course, they take the bitches and they put the up in Miss and, and
0: that iconic picture.
1: But Nikki, I want to also say one thing as well. You have shown and proven to a lot of people that resistance has been given to you and you overcome every part of it you know you yes. have shown that and that is an applaud in itself Thank so you. we're going to keep resisting in you so that you can keep kicking our ass <laughs> <laughs> and
0: Thank we you, Thank and you.
1: just look love is a message to
0: film keep your eyes on everything of what he's love doing message film.com That's just right. go up and sign up for the mailing list please
1: there it is. And Nicky Ciano, once again, may you last another 60 more years, oh, 65 oh. more years to give us as many new stories. And new- <laughs> <laughs> because, Oh, another thing is, everyone, 1972 is 50 years when he started the gallery. 50 years. It's a long, it's a half a century. That's amazing.
0: Thank you. Man. To still Thank be able to, to, to be here to say, what it is? I I was so young back then because I would, I would really be, <laughs> I would really be in deep shit right you now. So he wouldn't be
1: with us. Yeah, because yeah. Kuso's no longer. I mean, yeah, he was I older. Know. He We're was older, older. And, um, and he
0: was older than me. Yeah,
1: yeah, and a lot of, and I mean, we lost so many DJs the last few oh, years. Oh my
0: god! I just every time someone drops, I go no, no, no. I, I just, I love deep. DJs who were around back then so much because they have a certain genese quoi that the new DJs they don't really understand that we were a unit we were all friends we were all one thinking music machine working together to make the hits and when I played a record or Richie played a record. Or whoever found that record, David, I remember David Mancuso coming home from Spain and giving me the Barabbas album. And there was only 10 copies he brought, he brought back. And Woman and Wild Safari was from that import that David brought back from Spain. And we started going on it like crazy. And within a couple of months, it was out on Atlantic. So it, it was way cool. Honey, mean? the power of the DJ spoke. Exactly. The power of the DJ
1: spoke. And how did he speak? From the turntable. That's right. That's right. It wasn't about social media. It was about the fabulous pictures. There was no pictures. No. That's really? why nobody has pictures. And that's the other thing. Is how the hell you always have a camera around you in those days? <laughs> okay. Who the hell was taking
0: pictures of all these? Because nobody has pictures except you. Okay. I... I don't know why, but I was obsessed with my little Instamatic I had. It was a Kodak Instamatic and I was obsessed with it and I would carry it everywhere. But what happened at the gallery is it became so popular that two photographers would come in and shoot. And a lot of that stuff they have given me um, from their collection that, that I now own. So and there's a couple more, like Brian Lantelm, who is a great photographer. He's got a lot of stuff historically. He used to take pictures at the gallery all the time. It's real unfortunate that we don't have stuff from the loft, from the first loft. Or as good as the as the um, garage was, we don't have extensive photos or video from there because it wasn't video. It was mostly no. film, right? Yeah. No. And
1: that's what people always say. Oh, you have pictures. You have pictures like back then nobody carried cameras. No, it was very rare. Very rare. That's why I'm always laughing. You you come out of nowhere, bam! <laughs> picture. Nikki's got another photo of these classic shots. Like, where did this come from? We <laughs> oh, yeah, had Nikki, tell her about what you found in your brother's house.
0: Okay. Well, that picture from Larry. Yeah, I tell her- that you just showed was my brother's basement flooded. And he had to take out a lot of things. And he found three albums from the gallery. And okay. that picture of Larry was one of the pictures that was in those photo albums. Okay. So, and that's something. Yeah. Everybody's and asking, I'm is that minding, Benny Soda? I'm mining him. <laughs> I'm
1: him. Nick, everybody's been asking me, is that Benny Soda? Benny Soda would be too young. Looks no, no, like- no,
0: no, 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 It's not Benny Soda. <laughs> that, that guy, he was also a big fashion Person who's very into fashion, I remember. It's always a pleasure talking to you. You are just a joy in my life, and I really appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you.